Welcome back to the Happy Saver podcast. I'm Ruth, a personal finance blogger here in Aotearoa. And in this podcast, as you know, I chat with a diverse bunch of people and I learn their story. And then I condense it down so that you can hear helpful, relatable stories from Kiwis who are sharing their experiences, their tips and their point of view on personal finance here in New Zealand. So let's crack on. Now, it pays to be careful if you email me. The chances of me finding you interesting enough to end up on my podcast are quite high. In fact, when Helen and Scott, the couple I'm telling you about today, started emailing me, ending up on my podcast was the very thing Scott warned Helen about. And here we are. Now, the standout for me today is how quickly you can change your financial lot in life simply because you decide to. Helen and Scott are 45 and 42 respectively and have lived a life common to many of us with good bits, not so good bits and to a large extent following the crowd for whom managing money is a struggle. With five tamariki between them, they have known each other a long time yet only became a couple a few years ago. Both carry the scars of financial lessons from previous marriages including reliance on consumer debt and being excluded either willfully or unwillingly from handling putia. Yet, they both jumped in boots and all with their money in their relationship today. Working harder was always their way out of a financial jam, but finally they are learning to work smarter. But before I get ahead of myself, a quick message from Pocketsmith, today's sponsor. I do like a bargain, so imagine my delight when my favourite local restaurant said that they were looking for a mystery shopper, all expenses paid. My family is less interested in budgeting and bargain hunting, but they do love eating. And all we had to do was order, eat and pay the $125 bill. I categorised this as an expense in my dining out budget within Pocketsmith. Once I gave the restaurant my glowing feedback, they reimbursed the cost of our delicious dinner and I categorised this as income in my dining out budget within Pocketsmith, meaning that one cancelled out the other. Given that we eat out about twice a month, I managed to halve this monthly expense, freeing up money to use elsewhere. If you want to supercharge your finances with Pocketsmith, they've got a deal for you. Happy Saver listeners get a whopping 50% off your first two months of Pocketsmith's premium plan. To get your deal, go to pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. That's pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. Now, I learned something near the end of my korero with Helen and Scott, which are not their real names, by the way, they wanted to remain on the down low, that I wanted to share with you in the beginning. If you are stuck in a rut and want to make changes, then listen up. I spoke with them in late July of 2023, but it was only on the 10th of June, just one and a half months earlier, that they had their I've had it moment and decided to re-educate themselves about their putia. I'll now do my very best to describe who they are and what happened to make them change. So wish me luck. Helen's parents separated when she was three years old, but she saw a lot of both of them as her parents both began new relationships. Helen and her younger sister, they never had a whole lot because their mum was on a limited income from the DPB. Now, that is the domestic purposes benefit, and it was introduced with the aim of helping women with dependent children who had lost the support of their husband or were inadequately supported by him. Now, they lived in Auckland in a council house, and they had no car to get around. Helen was blissfully unaware that they were considered quite poor, and it was only later that she found out that her mum wore the same dress for 10 years, making sure instead that Helen and her sister were always clean and tidy with good clothes to wear. 
she never let on to her kids what things were like. While her mum was unable to work at that time, her dad worked full-time and he moved into a rented house. Now Helen has no memory of money being scarce as such, but they were never rich, she said. They didn't go without, with always enough food in the cupboards and electricity when they flicked a light switch on. Her dad was finally able to buy a house of his own when he was in his 40s. When her mum met her second husband, they moved to the South Island and also into a home of their own. Helen was about 13 at that time and she moved in with her dad, who was again single but was now a full-time parent to Helen's half-sister and his two adopted children. When she was 14, they all moved to the South Island too until she left home at the age of 17. She had met a guy and together they moved from a small South Island town back up to the big smoke of Auckland, but it was too big a change in pace for them, so back down south they went. Her boyfriend became her husband and together they had two children who were now late teens. When the kids started school, because they only had one car, Helen found a job close to home and started to work part-time in hospitality, mostly starting at 6am and being home by midday. But the marriage was not a good one. Among many portraits that her husband had, handling money was one of them, and he remained very, very controlling with money throughout their marriage. Nor was he that reliable in getting his kids to school, and after five years of rushing about, managing home life and working, she moved into an office job that fitted in with school hours much better. Her employer took one look at her CV and work ethic and snapped her up. I asked what having a spouse controlling the money looked like in reality and how the control of her via money happened. They had joint finances, but she had absolutely zero say in how that money was spent. Once her pay entered their bank account, that was the last she knew of it. They did buy a home for their family, a tidy bungalow, bought in about 2001 or 2002 for about $110,000, and that was one of the really good financial decisions he made, she said. As her children got older, she moved to full-time work, and her husband would work off and on. His ability to stick with a job was always an issue. He would work for a year or two, and then off on a tangent he would go, always working in or around a couple of key industries, but never sticking with it long term. And just when things were apparently going well for him at work, say he was offered a promotion for example, he would kind of self-sabotage and throw away a good opportunity and pivot to another job or simply take a break from all work, making his ability to earn an income very unreliable. They had decided to move to a different town, so in about 2008, they sold their home for about $315,000 and planned to briefly rent a house until they found something that they liked. Helen was really keen to do this quickly, but it didn't work out that way. As far as she was aware, he had put the money from the sale of their house in a special bank account that they were not meant to touch so that as soon as they saw a house to buy, the deposit was available. But her husband had a break from work with an injury, not once but twice, and he kind of got used to not working. He kind of lost his confidence a bit, she said, and in the end, he just didn't want to go back to work, so he didn't. She continued to work full-time, moving up in role to a good HR position at her work that all her years of experience made her perfect for, And although she was thinking, how are we living and paying our bills on my income alone? Well, she knew better than to ask because she was simply kept out of everything financial and would invite a confrontation if she brought it up. All she could do was trust that he was handling their money well and she was having a hard time trusting him. Throughout the years and unknown to her, 
He was so poor with handling money that businesses wouldn't let him open accounts in his name, phone accounts, for example, so he put accounts in her name. Any question she ever had was answered with, oh, I'll pay it, I'll handle it, and he would get angry at even being asked. Helen didn't even know how to pay a bill, and it was not worth risking his reaction to even ask about it. And the longer they rented, which was five years in total, the more concerned she was about the house deposit sitting in the bank. But if she asked how much was there, well, she was met with anger. So suffice to say, when the curtains were pulled back on their situation, it took five years, but he had spent it all. All of their nest egg was gone. I asked if she knew what it was spent on. It was spent on living, basically. She doesn't recall any fancy cars in the driveway or any overseas adventures. They were just living a normal life, apparently. But because she had no awareness of what life actually cost, because she played no part in any financial transactions, she was unaware that her income was not enough to meet their outgoings. And although she was often worried, she was kept completely in the dark. Unsurprisingly, Helen had no trust in her husband, because he had let her down so many times, had clearly made a lot of poor financial decisions, and she knew she wanted out of her marriage. But family encouraged her to stay for the sake of the kids, and Helen said she would have felt guilty if she left. And sadly, I think this is an all-too-common sentiment. But she reached a tipping point one day, and she said she finally got the courage to go. She had stayed too long already in what sounded like an unfixable marriage, and after 20 years she walked out, and she was very happy to be out. She left everything behind, and when I say everything, I mean it. With her children, they moved in with support of Fano for many months before something incredibly positive happened to her. During that tumultuous time in 2021, she started seeing someone that she had known for a long time, but never in a romantic capacity, Scott. She said that he was going through his own family stuff at that time, but they started talking and they've never looked back. They've never stopped talking either, and that is the key to their success, I think. So, that tells you a little bit about Helen, but what about Scott? He is from a mid-sized North Island town and sounds like the type of guy whose parents were decent people and very hard workers. His dad worked at a freezing works and when he was a young fella, Scott remembers going to work with him in the school holidays sometimes. He doesn't recall them having much money when they were young and his dad in particular worked hard for everything they had. Scott picked up on that work ethic and when he was young he remembers picking mushrooms and selling pine cones for pocket money. He remembers always wanting to make money so he could spend it, yet he never knew how to save it. He never knew that he should save any of it. Now school was made harder for Scott because of his dyslexia, so he was pretty keen to leave. His parents told him that he was not allowed to leave school until he had a job, so he asked his uncle, who was a part owner of a business, if he could work for him. The answer was of course yes, so at the age of 15 he started his apprenticeship in the saw making industry. So basically he became a skilled craftsman at making the huge saws that sawmills used to process timber. And he stayed for six years until boredom and a curiosity to learn something else took him to learn another trade, this time as a spring maker. He began a new apprenticeship and stayed for three years learning the trade of making springs for cars and trucks and trains. And in time, imported springs ended this business, but the skills he learned from both of these careers are immensely valuable still. Basically, he became a highly skilled engineer in his field. Now, I can tell you, prior to our chat, these were two industries I'd never heard of before. Now, still in his early 20s, he moved to the South Island. 
He picked up horticultural work briefly before moving into full-time work in a machine shop. And also, as luck would have it, he met his future wife. Now, I asked what became of all the money he made during those seven to eight years of his life, given it's rare for a 15-year-old to be earning a full-time salary, even if it was an apprentice wage. He simply said that he spent all the money. Whatever he earned, he spent. And when, at the age of 18, his bank immediately offered him a credit card, he also started to spend money that he didn't have. He was never taught how to pay it back, so he just maxed it out all the time, and he always struggled to work out how to pay it off in full, which has managed to keep him in debt ever since. From speaking with him, I could see how these money behaviours took hold. He grew up watching his dad work really hard, and in turn he was encouraged to work hard himself. Money came from work, and if you run out of money, all you need to do is work harder. He knew to pay his utility bills, so he didn't ever fall in arrears with them, but he was never taught to save any portion of his income at any point, nor how to pay down consumer debt on credit cards or how high interest debt worked. If you borrowed $1,000 at 27% interest, you would have to pay back $1,270. Nobody ever taught him this. He was also really honest when he said that over the years he would buy something he really, really wanted, such as a vehicle. He'd drive it around for a bit, but then be forced to sell it because he couldn't make the payments, or he and his whanau, they needed the money elsewhere. So over the years, he was constantly giving up things that he liked and wanted, and that habit leaves its mark too. Years ago, I was at a wedding, and I ended up speaking with a guy who owned a business who preys on people just like Scott. Now call me naive, but I was pretty shell-shocked when he explained that his business model was to sell things to people on a really high interest rate. Then he'd wait for them to default on payments, swoop in and repossess the item, or he'd buy it back for a lot less, while also hitting them with late payment fees and charges, and then have ongoing income from the poor debtor trying to pay it off over the years. Now, fair to say, he was one of the most revolting people I've met in a long time, and I suspect I told him so as he kept his distance for the rest of the evening. Now, if you, like Scott, through no fault of your own, are mishandling money because you never learn the basics of how it works, without a doubt there are people and businesses preying upon you. Scott, his wife and their three children, they moved to another South Island town, the same town as Helen was in as it later turned out. He wanted to find work quickly so he could support his whānau and he took a night job at a factory doing what sounded like minimum wage work, which I thought was unusual given he was pretty well qualified already and could find a better paid gig. From the conversation we were having, I'd already gleaned some information from him about what a skilled craftsman the guy was, but I suspected he didn't quite see that himself at that stage. And it was actually while having a yarn with a colleague about his former jobs that their conversation was overheard by a supervisor that saw him immediately moved into a job better suited to his high skill level in the engineering side of their business. And he again began a four-year apprenticeship, seeing him become a qualified engineer. Now, as the years passed, he found that he was working on the same equipment year in, year out. So he changed employer to find some new challenges, learning some new skills and having some fresh experiences. And that is where he remains today, working as a maintenance engineer in quite a fast-moving industry. All his hands-on learning, academic qualifications earned, and the fact he's such a hard worker and his ability to teach others saw him headhunted by his current employer. 
So my next question was to ask him how the money side of things was in his marriage. They were together for 16 years, they were married for nine, and his response was not that great. Scott left his wife to handle the money side of things. He left her to handle all of their finances. Why? Because he was just not interested, and with dyslexia, he found handling household accounts confusing. He just wanted to make money and deliver that to his family, thinking that his job ended there. And once all the bills were paid by his wife, he and they would spend anything that was left over, returning their bank balance to zero until a new pay cycle began. When the weekly paycheck rolled in, they would do it all over again, living paycheck to paycheck. In 2011, they decided to buy a house, and because they didn't have enough for a deposit, well, he had the easy solution. He just worked harder, because that is how you get money. And work hard he did, working 80 hours a week for eight months for $23 an hour until they could get the deposit together. In fact, there was a time in his mid-30s that he worked so hard because he needed more money for something that he suffered an incredibly serious medical event which could have been the end of him. The advice of his doctor was to take eight weeks off work and he went back after three days. Why? Because the money was all gone, they had no money to live and how do you get money? You work. So he was stuck in a really vicious cycle. Year after year, he just worked, and at the end of each week, the day before payday, if there was only $2 left in their bank account, well, he thought he just needed to work even harder to make more money for the next payday, instead of asking himself where all the money was going. Because he played no role in helping his wife manage their money, which I actually think is an unfair thing for one person to do to another, it's a lot of pressure to put on one person, unsurprisingly, money became a wedge, one of many in their marriage. Just like Helen, Scott reached his own tipping point and after 16 years together, he and his wife got divorced. It was during that time that he saw the result of his hands-off attitude to family finances. In their divorce, their net worth, which was made up of what they owned and what they owed, it was split down the middle, both assets and debts. He knew they had a mortgage and he knew they owed money on their car, which they had financed but he was unaware of a credit card maxed out to the tune of $40,000 that was in his wife's name, nor the 20-plus bank accounts, many with negative balances either. Now that became his problem. Having paid zero attention for so long, his introduction to personal finance was a swift one, he said. Having negotiated how they would settle things and seeing that finalised, he went to the bank to organise a mortgage so that he could purchase the house they formerly owned together. Having never dealt with the bank, This was a completely new experience, and it was at this time that he remembered, or was perhaps reminded by his bank, of the $10,000 credit card that he had. With the divorce finalised, this bill was now all his own mess to clear up. Plus, he now had a $550,000 mortgage that was all on him too. As someone sitting on the sidelines listening to this, it was almost inconceivable that a bank would lend money to someone who was so uncertain about how to handle money but it's also unlikely that they never knew the full extent of it. It's a little like giving someone with a learner's license a Ferrari to drive. Surely it's not going to go well. And who forgets that they have a credit card maxed out at $10,000? I think that that just shows the extent of Scott's hands-off attitude to money. So when I finished telling you a little about Helen, I said that Scott was dealing with some of his own stuff, and now you can see what I meant. Now it was at this point, with both of them recovering from quite the ordeal, that having known each other in passing for a few years, they properly met. And the rest, as they say, is history. Except 
This is a far better history that they're trying to create second time around. However, sometimes it takes us time to learn and things sometimes stay the same until they finally improve. Now they began their relationship in 2021, but they didn't have their financial smack in the face until June of 2023. Helen and her children, who were about 16 at the time, moved in with Scott and his three tamariki, who range in age from 10 to 17, into the house he now owned and had a mortgage on. They each shared custody of their children with their former spouses, with tamariki coming and going. Now how did they manage to navigate their finances the second time around, I had to ask? Well, Helen had no debt, nor did she have anything at all in the way of household effects. Her net worth was effectively zero. She had literally left her former home with nothing. Now Scott had a house with a large mortgage, plus credit card debt, and no furniture, as his ex had that. In the grand scheme of things, his net worth was not much different to hers. With five kids between them, they set about setting up the house, using debt. They combined their finances quite quickly, which surprised me given what they had both been through, and I asked how they felt okay about doing that. She said that from the beginning, neither kept tabs on who was spending what. Each of them were working full-time, and they just paid what needed to be paid. So if she paid for something for his children, it probably meant that he was paying something for hers. She might have bought the groceries, but he picked up a bill somewhere else. So it was more or less even anyway. And it was actually Helen who suggested combining their finances. Her intuition told her Scott was trustworthy, and it was Scott who was apprehensive to mingle their putia, given his past. Now, she was a bit offended at the time. It took a bit to understand his hesitation, which she now does, and pretty quickly it felt natural to just share bank accounts. Basically, the huge difference is that the two of them discuss putia all the time. There is complete openness and transparency around money in their home, and each can see what the other does. There are no secrets, nothing is hidden, and nor is there any need to be. And once they talked it through, they could both see how very different the way they discuss money was now compared with their former relationships. They were so on the same page with their spending that each of them feels they have a voice, and that is a massive, massive change. Handling money is teamwork, not a job you pawn off to your spouse or dictate to your spouse how it's going to be. Each has an equal say, and that is imperative in a good relationship. But although they now know that the other is not going to run up debts without the other knowing, neither of them hesitated to take on debt together. To kick things off and get their home set up right, he borrowed $1,800 from a family member to buy some furniture, an amount that would be paid back over time from their income. Next, their first big debt together was a $24,000 car bought on finance to ferry the whanau around at a 3% interest rate, which for those who use debt to facilitate every purchase is considered a good interest rate. And because he knew his credit card was maxed out, they used a gem card to buy a new fridge. They used a credit card, a different one to the one that he's trying to pay off, to buy three grand's worth of beds. They actually found that buying these beds on even more finance was hard to do, given her poor credit rating from her name unwittingly being dragged through the financial mud in her first marriage. Now, this particular credit card did once have a zero balance because Scott said he had paid it off and for a moment I was really impressed that he had paid it down to zero. But a few questions later, I sadly no longer was. He had never really put in any effort to pay it off. He had never made big payments towards it. Remember that he didn't understand how to do that. And put simply, 
When he was approved for his mortgage, he consolidated the balance owing on this credit card onto his mortgage, bringing the credit card balance down to zero. So it gives the illusion that you have paid it off, that you've actually done something, but you have simply moved the debt into another place. He should have cut the card up as soon as the balance was zero, as the chances of him using that card again at that time in his life was 100%. They then bought a second car, also on finance. It was smaller, cheaper to run, and by their calculations at that time, they reasoned it was easier to pay off. And the way their thinking worked at that time was the way it had always worked, that as long as they could afford the weekly or monthly payments on all of these things and make the mortgage payments, then they could afford it all. Using his old thought processes, Scott simply saw a payment and thought about how many more hours he needed to work to pay it off. Because as he had done his entire working life, you could always work harder to make your required payments. Therefore, by their calculations, they could afford everything they were buying using debt because they could make the payment. A really, really common way of thinking about money. If you go to a car yard and you look at the price of a car, It makes more of a feature of the weekly payment than the entire price of the vehicle because it feels much more palatable that way. And falling for the weekly payment is the surest way to always stay in debt, if you ask me. Senia from episode number 66 called You've Got to Know Your Numbers, she realized that she had fallen into the same trap too until she finally added up all the weekly payments that were going towards debt and realized that their entire income was gone each week. And as Helen and Scott moved into 2023, they began to feel that although they could meet these payments, it was getting harder to have money left over at the end of each week to do the other things they like to do, like go out for a coffee, have a takeaway, or visit their favorite retailer, which happens to be Bunnings. As many thankfully do, Scott started to question if this was really his lot in life, with both of them working hard to pay for things they'd bought. He started work at 15 and has worked his butt off for the past 27 years. Now given he is only 42, did he really have to work another 23 years before he could finally retire at the age of 65? Now here comes the tipping point that you've all been waiting for. Scott had told Helen he wanted to semi-retire before 65. He had heard this concept on a Joe Rogan podcast, but he realised he knew nothing about finances. But what he did know was that the way they were plodding along just wasn't going to cut it for much longer. Now he started to seek out information about money and since that day they have not looked back. He came upon the Happy Saver podcast, specifically episode number 34 called I'm Keeping the Dog. That was the first one he listened to and he could fully relate to Tracy, the woman I interviewed for that episode. She was $94,278 in consumer debt, and he heard me explain how she had systematically paid it all off in just 33 months, or two years and nine months. She lined her debts up, stopped all other spending, and steadily paid her debts off as fast as she could. Now, he said that he felt physically sick at what he had just worked out about debt from listening to her story. Scott knew they had debt. But because they were so focused on living week to week, he didn't really know how much it was, where it was, or how it was structured. And that podcast sent him binge listening to many more of my episodes, and he said he came home, he got out a pen and paper, and he just started to nut things out. And it was a real aha moment. For the first time, he realized they'd mucked up, 
they were handling their money in a way that puts them behind and not ahead. And pretty much as soon as he had the basics down on paper, he started to korero with Helen and they started to turn a corner in June of 2023, June the 10th to be precise. Now because two heads are better than one, the journey was really set to begin. And this is why I was so keen to share the journey. Because you can achieve a whole lot in a very short amount of time once you start to relearn how money works. And the first step is realising you have a problem. The second is being proactive to learn how to change it yourself. No one is going to do it for you. You have to get the ball rolling yourself. And I was so delighted to hear that this is what they did. It's all you need to get started. A pen and paper and a willingness to make a start. They logged into their bank. They worked out how much they were getting paid. And together they take home 2400 each week after tax. In busy periods at work, he has the ability to earn quite a bit more. But realistically, they take home $124,800 each year after taxes. So it's a good income. They also worked out what they were spending on all of their household bills like power, rates, insurance and what have you. And then came the big question. There was a gap between what they were earning and what they were spending on those regular necessary household bills. So they asked themselves a very simple question, where did the rest of the money go? A bit of tapping on the calculator helped them add up all of the spending that was luxury and not necessity, all of the nice-to-haves. And they found, amongst many other things, that they had spent $1,200 on coffees and eating out in the previous month. That's $300 a week. That's $1,200 that they now realised could have gone on all the debt they had. They took a closer look at what they owed. That pesky credit card, the one that he forgot about, he could never work out why the balance never dropped much below $10,000, despite him paying $150 a week towards it. Well, they worked out what the issue was. Well, there were two issues, really. Every time there was a sniff of cash available to spend, they would turn around and use the card thinking it was okay to do so. Something unexpected always seemed to happen, which necessitated its use. That, and the not-too-insignificant issue of the 27%, yep, you heard that right, 27% interest rate on the card. A $150 a week payment was never going to pay this card off, especially if you kept using it. Now, this debt in particular, it really started to worry him. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. As I was voicing this podcast, Johnny always sits and listens as I do it so that I get it right. And even he was stopping me going, hang on, wasn't that credit card that one or the gym debt that one and that sort of thing? All you need to know is that there was a lot of consumer debt floating around. And I might not have got it perfect, but the gist is they really couldn't understand where all their money was. And I struggled to get that down on paper. But we're getting there. So hang in with me. It was all of the wonderful people who have shared their experiences with money on this podcast who pointed out the issues with paying such a high interest rate. And when he understood interest rates and how the interest you are charged then adds to your debt and compounds and grows even more, that he began to figure out how to fix his own problem. He worked out how to make higher payments on the card, much, much higher than $150 per week, which reduced the overall balance meaning that the interest he was charged was decreasing. Plus, and this is a huge deal, he also completely stopped using that card. They wrote up a plan to make $500 weekly payments to get the balance to zero as fast as they could, which will be in the second week of September by their calculations. 
They also made extra payments on the other small debts and cards that they had accrued and very quickly started to fully pay them off so that when they opened the fridge, they knew they owned it. And I bet they slept more soundly in their bed at night knowing that they own that too. And they physically cut up all the credit cards and store cards that they had. Another important step worth mentioning is to also remove the credit card autofill on any website you shop on. You need to fully close these accounts by going to the provider and telling them to do so. They will push back on this. As a business who makes money by selling debt, this is their worst nightmare because they don't want to lose you as an income-producing customer. So cutting off all access to debt is strategic and Helen and Scott were hesitant to do this because what if there was an emergency? Emergencies seem to happen all the time to these two and now that they had cut off their escape route of consumer debt, how would they cope? Well, they'd learned enough through listening to the experiences of others that you can be your own saviour in an emergency and as fast as they possibly could, which meant going without dinners out and coffees, they built up an emergency fund of $1,000 and they put it in its very own bank account called Emergency Fund. Now they contribute $50 a week to this bank account to build that fund up a bit higher. They began to use debit cards when they shopped, which means that they are now using their own money. And when you swipe your card and you see the money leave your account straight away, that has much more of an impact on the way you spend than if you defer that payment on a credit card. So once again, that's why I haven't focused on how much their debt was, where it was and the likes of that, because I think it's more important that you see how they've worked their way out of the problems they created. Now, a general rule of thumb is that when you are getting out of consumer debt, as they are, having one to $2,000 of cash in an emergency fund is enough to tide you over so that you can focus on smashing out your debt. And once that consumer debt is gone, even if you also have a mortgage, you can then build up your emergency fund to three to six months of expenses. They have decided that about four grand is their goal because they reason that if they get into a car crash, well, their excess is $500. Or if their home gets damaged, their insurance excess is $600. Now, as more knowledge comes to hand of what unexpected costs could come up, they will continue to reassess the amount they plan to have in their emergency fund. Now, this is what makes personal finance personal, each to their own. It didn't surprise me to learn that an emergency was not far away for them, and when you don't have any money, they never are. But this time, they reached into their emergency fund and withdrew $360 to pay an unexpected vet bill, just like that. They paid the bill, and it was done. Scott said that dipping into their emergency fund was so much easier, and he now realised he had always felt guilty using credit cards. They were putting subtle pressure on him. But this time, the money was there, the emergency was sorted, and they've now built their emergency fund back up to $1,000. Just like that, they solved their own problem. Now, this is a huge financial win and positive reinforcement for a new behaviour. What this also teaches them is that the chances of an animal needing the vet again is pretty high. So setting up a bank account specifically for their pets would be a really good idea. You create an account, you call it Pets, and set up an automatic $10 to $20 weekly payment on the same day you get paid. How much you set aside depends on the size of your pet and whether you have a rabbit or a horse and what you spent on it in total during the last 12 months. But the gist is that this account builds up steadily over time and is available to use when needed. So next time the animal is needing the vet, it is not a financial emergency at all. So with a $1,000 emergency fund up and working, they kept moving on. 
Now remember that they started in June, and when we spoke in late July, those smaller fridge and bed debts were history, and the credit card balance was down to 5600 So how have they done this? They've cut out all takeaways and eating outside of the house. In fact, eating outside the house now means taking your dinner outside and sitting in the garden. Eating out is now strictly for special occasions only, and one of those occasions will be when that darn credit card is paid off in full. They both work full-time, and they get home late, so they are using the cheapest version of my food bag or bargain box to have meals delivered. Now, this is an expense, but they've also cut down on what they are spending on groceries at the supermarket. They look really closely at what they spent on food, and they worked out that not only did they eat out all the time, costing them $300 a week, but they were also spending $500 across a week on daily trips to the supermarket, which is both a waste of time when you're a busy person and money. So to say they were shocked at their food bills was an understatement, and they've now cut back on their supermarket spend to somewhere between $200 to $215 plus a meal bag delivery. It varies because there can be anywhere between two to seven people eating at any time. But they write a list now, they meal plan, they shop once a week, and they go shopping together. When you are shaking up your financial life as they are, a supermarket shop can now be considered a date, in my view. Having meals sorted in advance is a huge stress relief, and a wonderful byproduct has been that their kids love to help in the kitchen. Toasty Tuesday, she said, is a fun night where everyone gets to choose and make their own meal with ingredients that they choose. So instead of cooking being a chore, it's become a nice family thing to do. So let's just do the math on that for a moment. They were spending $300 eating out and $500 on groceries. So $800 a week or $3,200 a month or a staggering $41,600 or 33% of their $124,800 income going to feeding themselves. They were rightly, truly shocked at those numbers once I'd worked them out, and they would have been excellent candidates for the TV program Eat Well for Less. The thing is, this is not uncommon at all. They said themselves that when you pay with a credit card, it's so easy to swipe it and not pay attention. It had never crossed their mind to sit down and work out what they spent on food. Well, now they pay attention. And while we were looking at wasted money, let's talk about smoking, a habit that Scott has thankfully given up about two years ago. Now, I had to ask, what do you think it would cost a week if you're a smoker? He used to spend $260 per week. That is a staggering $13,520 a year. Now, as a non-smoker, and you can probably hear it in my voice, I was incredulous. That's almost my yearly income from my part-time job. He now vapes at a cost of $40 a week or $2,080 a year. Better, but still a disgusting and lung-damaging habit worth giving up on, which he is currently trying to do. When you think that their household earns $2,400 a week, they are each spending a week of their lives so he can destroy his lungs with vape. So it's worth thinking about and asking whether that money would be better spent going towards a family holiday instead. They are not all work and no fun though. Each week they also take out $120 in cash and they split it in half. This is what they call their play money for the week which they can spend in any way they like. Continue to keep in mind that it's only been one and a half months since they decided to stop living paycheck to paycheck. These two have set up multiple bank accounts for their regular bills so that when an account is due for payment the money will be there. They have set the weekly transfer of money into these accounts a little bit higher 
So there's always a little bit extra there because they've decided that they would rather oversave for an expense than undersave and be left scrambling. Remember how Scott said that in the past he would buy an item and be forced to sell it because the money was needed elsewhere? Well, this simple setup of setting a little more money aside than you think you will need will prevent that from happening. And it's these simple habits which lead to such huge change over time. And you will repeatedly hear people who are successful with money say that automation of their banking and having simple money habits is what makes them successful. And Helen and Scott are well on their way now. When we spoke, they were making good inroads on their debt, but they still had $48,000 of consumer debt to pay off, which is spread over two car payments and that credit card. Their mortgage is about $530,000. And as I explained, they have a plan for that credit card and any overtime he is doing will put extra payments towards that debt too, getting it gone faster. But what about those cars of theirs with their combined $236 weekly payments? The cars make up the bulk of that $48,000 debt and at that rate is going to take a very long time to pay off. In fact, I suspect they'll want to change cars before they do. They are now aware of the likes of people like podcaster Dave Ramsey who would say, sell your car. But no, Scott refuses to. Because that is what he had to do in his marriage, keep selling the things he liked. Not this time. He wants to keep them both and pay them off. And I think actually Dave Ramsey would approve Scott. He says that anything with motors or wheels should add up to no more than half of your annual income. Why? Because you don't want all your wealth tied up in things that go down in value. So if these two stick to their plan of aggressively paying off these consumer items in full and as fast as they can, well, they can keep their cars and they can enjoy every single drive they take. And I hope they do. There is another bank account or sinking fund that they talked about and I gave them some thoughts on it. They want to take an overseas holiday within the next two years, so they have a bank account that they are putting $50 a week into. Their thought was that when the credit card is paid off, they will then put as much as they can in this account. They have had a tough couple of years and they are understandably desperate for a holiday, but I caution them that they are getting ahead of themselves by planning a big expense or they still have a previous big expense that they are still trying to pay off, and to instead research what a trip might cost so that they actually know what number they need to aim for, and then just put 5 to $10 a week into this account. Now, obviously, that is not enough, but it sets an intention for their future. They can see that this holiday will happen if they have created a bank account for it, but they have some other things to clean up first. If they reduce the money going into their holiday account, they can put that freed up additional $40 to $45 a week on that credit card. Now just think about it. They're putting $200 a month into a low interest savings account for a holiday when they are paying 27% on a high interest credit card. That money is better spent on debt. Then when it's gone, they can go after those car loans of theirs. Then when they are done, which won't take them that long, imagine just how much pootier they'll be able to set aside for the most incredible holiday. Now they said themselves that they want to go on holiday and they don't want to do it in debt, by which they mean that they will pay cash for the trip, they'll have an emergency fund of about $4,000 and then they'll knock out the vehicle debt when they get home. But I just really encourage them to yes, absolutely pay cash for travel and have that emergency fund, but also have those cars fully paid for well before they go. Now once that credit card debt is gone and then then turn that $500 weekly payment to those cars, well, they'll be gone in no time. 
It is a short, sharp burst of intensity, but being completely debt-free except the mortgage sounds like a nice way to relax to me. A holiday can instead be the reward for their determination and effort, and imagine coming home from a holiday knowing that the hard graft is over, no more consumer debt to pay at all. Now, I don't want to bang on about this, but brace yourselves (laughs) as I'm about to, but I think that to form long-lasting habits, it's important to finish what you start. When you think about it, it will only take them a very short time in the long scheme of things to close that chapter on debt and then get on with their lives. Because if they pause to pay for a holiday now, then I have no doubt in my mind that sooner or later, probably sooner rather than later actually, they will pause to pay for something else too. Now Scott is an engineer by training. You need to be precise and clinical in a job like that. And I think if he applies the same mentality to money, he'll get better results. You have to stay focused. Now, moving on. Another bank account or sinking fund that they have is for their kids. For all of their sinking funds, they move money into them weekly in step with their weekly pay cycle. They're putting aside $40 each week to cover school-related expenses. And this is an excellent idea. And it means that the start of a school year will never be a scramble for cash to pay for uniforms and school supplies. They also have one for vehicle maintenance, which gets $30 a week. Why $30? Well, he's listened to every single one of my podcasts now, and they added up what they spent on both vehicles last year, not including those debt repayments, which was $1,560. They divided that amount by 52 weeks, getting $30. Now, this should cover their warrant of fitness, a service, registration, etc. And if something more major happens, well, you guessed it, that is what the emergency fund is for. They also have an insurance sinking fund where they move money each week to ensure they can meet all of their monthly insurance payments. Now the thing about all these sinking funds is that there is both an automated and a manual component to your banking. You can automate a lot of stuff but you still have to check in often. So it's not uncommon for people like myself who use sinking funds to know a bill is coming up for payment and then either manually move money to the checking account in readiness for it to be paid or set up an auto transfer to make it happen. And finally, they do have a little additional income coming in. Two of their kids are working and earning a living and a living at home, and they each pay $150 a week for board. Now, this teaches their tamariki that they need to learn to pay regular bills, and that because they are earning, they should pay their way, and this money offsets the food bills and the small cabin that they rent for extra space at a cost of $110 a week. Personal finance is not one and done. You are always tinkering. Things are always coming up, such as a child returning home to live. But the way Helen and Scott now keep their finger on the pulse of their putia, they are easily able to adjust to these changes now. And I just loved how they rattled off with ease where their money is now going. And several times during our corrido, I found myself just so very excited for them. And one of those times was when Helen mentioned, just in passing, our bank account is healthy now. It's really good to hear them feel that they have peace with their money. They get paid on Tuesday and they have a wall planner where they are now tracking their debt repayments and they really have a framework in place that they know and understand. And they make pretty good money. They were just wasting so much of it. Now with so many accounts with money in it, it's a pretty good feeling and paying off debt is now their hobby. And if you want to succeed, you really do have to look at it that way with a positive attitude. Even with dyslexia, Scott is finding he is managing the numbers pretty good. And of course, seeing they are doing this as a team, it's made even easier. 
Together, they understand their money a lot more and they've moved from having no idea how they would pay off that credit card to having listened to so many others explain how they paid off debt, knowing that they could break it down and they could do it themselves. And given we were talking about groceries and what have you, I asked how they are feeling given the fact that the cost of many things, everything it seems, has gone up in value. He said if they'd continued living and spending the way they were just six months ago, a small increase in groceries or fuel would definitely have been a big deal. But now, and I think this shows just how far they've come, he said that when your finances are in order, they think that it's not that bad. A rise in the cost of living is not such a big deal. They feel in a financially safe place. So instead of working harder and picking up extra hours whenever money was needed, I've no doubt that these two are simply working smarter now and in such a short amount of time it's paying off. Now, as the self-proclaimed worst interviewer in the world, I do have a set of questions that I like to ask people and I generally veer off that list within five minutes of beginning to chat to people, but I did remember to ask about KiwiSaver. You may not be surprised to hear that he was late to the KiwiSaver party. He, like many, thought that he would avoid a government scheme and save the money himself. Of course, he never did, but he did eventually join and is now in an aggressive fund with Milford and has a balance of $36,000, a low balance given his age. Helen's KiwiSaver is an interesting dilemma, and it's actually one of the reasons she emailed me in the first place. Hers is also with Milford in a conservative fund with a low balance given her age of 20 grand. The fact that she is young and in a conservative fund is a problem. She will end up with tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, less in her account at 65, but it's not the problem that she was seeking information about. She had stopped her contributions completely because she realised that she was paying both the employee and the employer contribution, and it was a friend of hers that pointed this out to her. To summarise, this is what was happening to her. Helen's employer's 3% KiwiSaver contribution was part of her total remuneration package. Employers can choose whether to make KiwiSaver contributions on top of your pay package or out of your pay package. According to a consumer.org.nz article I read, which was written by Nikki Lee Birdsey and it was dated the 7th of April 2022, there must be a total remuneration clause in your employment agreement for this to be legal. This clause is in Helen's contract and this clause allows employers to deduct KiwiSaver contributions from the employee's pay. So to use round numbers, if your total annual remuneration is, for example, $100,000, the employer is allowed to deduct the minimum employer contribution of 3%, meaning your actual annual salary is $97,000 instead. It is 3% or $3,000 lower than you may have expected. Most of us would expect 3% in addition to our $100,000 salary. Of course, you will also have your employee contribution deducted as you would expect, so another $3,000. In the case of Helen, she was having 6% deducted from her salary, which was good in one respect, she was making a decent personal contribution to her KiwiSaver, but without the employer adding anything on top of her income, it was not really in keeping with the point of signing up to KiwiSaver with an employer. In frustration, she told her employer to cease all contributions, meaning that she took her entire paycheck home. Now, I encouraged her to try to negotiate with her employer. If they are reasonable, they might change and she has a meeting lined up to do just that. She is not waiting until annual review time because a lot of employers let that date slide by, but is being proactive and going to her employer to have this resolved. 
And due to her increased workload, she's actually asking for a pay review at the same time. Good on her. But until it is sorted in her favour, I hope, I encourage her to not let that stop her from making voluntary contributions to her own KiwiSaver from her take-home pay instead. Then she won't miss out on the $521 a year from the government and her weekly voluntary contributions will be growing and compounding over time too. She really encourages you to go and look at your payslip and see how you are being paid KiwiSaver too. Now they also started a small investment into sharesies and have a balance of about $450 spread over the S&P 500, Australian 200 and the New Zealand Top 50 plus one single stock. But again, I caution them that there will be plenty of time to invest once they are out of consumer debt. And for now, that $450 could be doing a lot of good in paying down a debt that is incurring 27% interest. The chances of them earning 27% on this investment are slim in this market, so clear up that debt would be my first thoughts. Now, once your eyes are opened to investing and saving, it's very easy to get distracted off your debt payoff path. But every $50 you put somewhere else, it means it takes longer to pay off debt. So I really strongly encourage these two to stick to the basics here and do them well and get that credit card and those cars paid off. At the time of recording, he only has another one and a half months to go before his credit card is pronounced dead and that $500 can then be turned towards one of the car loans. Now, the one thing we have yet to discuss is his $530,000 mortgage. He was fortunate to buy at a time when interest rates were lower, and he currently has a 3% interest rate, which is fixed until June 2024. The house is valued at about $800,000 now, give or take, and due to all the recent cost cutting, they decided that they could now afford to increase their payments up to $600 a week. Now, I'd really encourage them that once they are out of consumer debt, to make the most of the interest rate while it's locked in at 3%, because that way you will pay off more of the principal with each and every payment. Now, when their mortgage term expires, they will be in a more comfortable position to handle that undoubtedly higher rate. And if they can still continue to make additional payments on their debt, it will be fully gone before they know it. Another thing we discussed was that it might be that they steadily pay down their mortgage, but they don't pay it off via payments alone. Once all the kids have left home, moved into farays of their own, well, this house might be just too big for Helen and Scott and they might sell up, pay off their mortgage and buy another home, a smaller and therefore cheaper one with the equity and without the need for debt. Whatever way it plays out, that's where these two are headed, completely debt free. I said as much in an email to them to get the idea firmly in their head that they are going to be completely and permanently debt free one day. It is an achievable goal something they would have thought completely impossible just six months ago, and something they are still trying to get their head around, I think. But they are clever. They'll do some math and work it out. Basically, Helen said that they have finally realised that you can't live with a lifestyle that is above your income, which is what they were doing. You have to rein it in. It's just the reality of it. When they first started on this journey, they saw cutting out the takeaways as punishment, but they very quickly changed their tune. Now when they eat them, they don't taste any good at all and they now realise just how much money they wasted. Even if they had the means to eat out all the time, neither thinks they would even want to, which means that they've had a permanent change in their behaviour, which is yet another key element in winning financially. Now Scott thinks that life is too precious to not take more care with it. 
He is much calmer now, Helen said, and the answer to everything is no longer just working more. And one of the most rewarding things I heard was that she said that their kids have started noticing and they've started adjusting the way they do money too. The whole Fano is learning. All conversations about money are had in the open and in a calm way. Scott said he kept banging on about it out loud and all the kids are listening. This is how children learn about money. This is how we avoid our kids making the same mistakes we did. I would encourage them to double down on the dinner table lessons and never let money be a taboo subject. Their aim as parents should be to ensure that their tamariki leave home understanding how money works and then they can just go on and build upon that solid foundation. That's the key. Now the youngest was initially worried about the lack of McDonald's but now they're enjoying being at home cooking as a family. And yet another positive yet unintended outcome of managing their money well is that almost without noticing they are physically healthier too, having gradually lost weight because they were eating so much better. There is, however, one meal out that they have budgeted for. They have had their first monthly date night, a tip taken from the Barefoot Investor book by Scott Pape, and they have plans to make it monthly. This is their chance to sit down and talk about money, to see where they are at, and plan where they are going. The kids are a bit horrified not to be invited out to dinner, but it's perfectly reasonable for parents to want a night out together from time to time. Now I'm almost at the end, but before I wrap up, I just have another quick message from today's sponsor. If you want to supercharge your finances with Pocketsmith, they've got a deal for you. Happy Saver listeners get a whopping 50% off your first two months of Pocketsmith's premium plan. To get your deal, go to pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. That's pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. If you have listened to my podcast for a while, you will know that there were so many questions I didn't get to, but I'm okay with that and I hope you are too. Helen and Scott have come a long way in a very short space of time and I didn't realise how short until we picked up the phone for our kōrero. They both came from previous relationships where money and debt were hidden and each, particularly Helen, were controlled by the other spouse. Both were told they were no good with money by spouses who were mishandling money themselves but neither was given the chance to find out. So they internalised that information and they thought it to be true. But it turns out that they both had the ability to manage money well after all. Who knew? Up until the ages of 42 and 45, they had always struggled with money. That is 25 years each of struggle. They had always worked from payday to payday ever since they started working. I just can't imagine how demoralising that must feel to spend your entire working life constantly feeling like your back was up against the wall, constantly playing defensive with money, constantly thinking that the only way ahead was to work harder, and then realising that even that didn't work, and even when you created a goal to buy something, it got taken away from you again. If they hadn't decided to take on some new information, they would have just kept doing what they were doing, and they were headed in that direction in their new relationship together, by settling into old patterns of paying things off over time. Each time they wanted something, whether that be a car, a holiday, a visit to the vets or a home repair, they would have always reached for debt to pay for it, which meant that with each debt, they gave up another chunk of their future income. It's no way to live. It leaves you stuck. Now, I'm not trying to be harsh because these two were awesome, but I'm happy to be blunt. The way they handled money came down to a complete lack of understanding of the basics, And that comes from never being educated about how money works. And when there is a void in knowledge, something else will fill it. Whether that be endless meals out and takeaways, cars that you don't have the cash to pay for, 
or society just generally telling you that it's perfectly okay to spend every cent you earn plus money you don't have on one of those stupid gem cards or afterpay or whatever lender you've settled upon. The thing is that people live this way and then think that they will hit retirement and everything will be different, but it won't be. So what's the saying? If you aim for nothing, you'll hit it every time. These two were aiming at nothing, but now they are actually starting to envisage a far better future. Their finances are improving each and every week at a really rapid pace. Remember they took their entire lives to learn how they handled money? Yet in the space of just a few weeks, they have changed everything. But this first period can often get a little disheartening. When you first start to really pay attention to your putia, it kind of feels like you're getting nowhere. And as Scott said, you feel a bit sick to your stomach over past mistakes. And you will spend time undoing what you've spent a lifetime doing. But as I've shown, you will quickly start to gain momentum and confidence, which is where they are now. But the biggest change has already been made. And it's in their mindset and their now positive attitude around money, I think. Now, one email to me was all caps and it said, we've recently started realising how much money we were losing to debt and have now started saving more into sinking funds, paying down debt, not eating out, etc. And things are going so well. Financial freedom is the goal. And when I jump on a phone call to chat with someone, I love that I don't know much about them apart from what I've gleaned from emails because that stops me making assumptions about them. All I heard when we chatted was two immensely intelligent people who had been held down by partners, society, and themselves just a bit too long, which is why I'm not surprised at all that once they came upon a bit of information about money that was new to them and made sense, they have hit the ground running, and they are unstoppable, and it's really fun to watch. Now, near the end of our chat, they asked me what was next for them. Well, I was pretty clear that they have to finish off what they started, and that's all consumer debt gone, an emergency fund saved up, constant attention to budgeting and then set up a plan to become mortgage-free within the next 10 years. Then what comes next is building upon each of those elements. More money set aside for the shared hobbies that they want to do together. More money set aside to create memories with their kids now. More money to be generous and help their whanau and others. And also a steady stream of income going into their KiwiSavers and if they so desire into some broad-based ETF funds so that Scott can reach that goal that kicked this whole money transformation thing off, retiring earlier than 65. And given the position they're in now, the direction they're heading, the attention they are now paying, there is zero doubt in my mind that this is absolutely possible. I think what excited me so much about meeting these two is that I know a lot of couples just like them, but they don't realise they have a problem, yet they moan about life being hard, never realising that they have the power to change it. And I was just so delighted that they realized that they could change it. So well done to you both for getting your money sorted. I think a lot of people bumble along and everything mostly works. It's never quite uncomfortable enough or annoying enough to do anything about. But then I find that something shakes people up and they take action. And you two are certainly taking action. And once things start to roll, they just get better and better. And I think that is what you're seeing now. Momentum truly is building. Now, there is a secret source in all of this, and it is their relationship with each other. The benefit of going through a marriage that didn't work out is that second time round, you can identify what doesn't work, and you can run in the opposite direction from it. And I really wanted to sincerely thank you both for your time and for your openness about chatting about some really personal stuff. 
I know that there will be people listening to this who are not in a great place in their marriage, and you both being honest about yours will have given them some information to help them in their own journey. I encourage you to keep talking about money a little and often, and as time moves on, the kōrero is less about money, and it's more about where that money will take you. So enjoy your dinner out when you make that final credit card payment, and do the same when you own your own vehicles. And please, send me a photo when you're on your big holiday. And remember, I am here to help you, and I was serious when I said to you both that I would. So that's all from me this week. If you want to get in touch, you can find me at thehappysaver.com. And please do share this podcast with your friends and whanau. It is the best way that people can learn about it. And I would love it most if you would talk more about money with your own friends and whanau and help me continue to help others be better with money. So until next time, happy saving. Happy saving.